first held in 1953, it's the longest, toughest and fastest of all the nine rallies which make up the championship. I'm of course referring to the Safari Rally, held in Kenya over the Easter weekend on Africa's east coast and based in the capital city Nairobi. The first leg of the rally would consist of five competitive sections covering around 530 kilometers. First on the road and the early leader after the first section was the reigning world champion Colin McRae. The Scotsman doesn't have much experience in Kenya. The last time he did the safari was in a little Subaru Vivio in 1992 when he retired on the first day. He'd be hoping for a much better performance this year. Second place on the first round of this year's championship in Sweden was a superb result for the Ford team's new signing, Carlos Sainz. Like Subaru, Ford hadn't much recent experience in Kenya and had tested the car extensively in the weeks leading up to the rally. Hello and welcome back to the Rally DNA podcast in association with Slip and Grip Automotive. And thank you for joining us for a very special retrospective episode, one in which we discuss, dissect two different runnings of everyone's favourite long haul, wildebeest beasting bruiser, the East African Safari Rally. Joining me as usual is my illustrious co-host and co-driver and great friend, Killian Cronin. Welcome, buddy. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Um, very hot at the moment. And... Um... Yeah, I mean, it's safari week, so it wasn't like talking about safari. I thought you were going to do me over there and say it was the Ivory Coast or something instead. But um, yeah. <laughs> okay, because I prepared for this one. So. <laughs> Poor relation of the African classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lesser one. Sponsored, sponsored by the lesser cigarette brand as well. <laughs> so far down the rabbit warren already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, before we delve into the heat of the Serengeti by way of the Great Rift Valley, it's worth pausing to, to thank the official sponsors of the Rally DNA podcast, Slip and Grip Automotive. As you might be aware by this point, Slip and Grip Automotive is a UK-based motorsport events organiser and members club. They host various event types throughout the year uh, at a number of UK locations, including track days, sprints, tarmac rally testing and social events. They're also the sole organisers for the Bont Rally stage in Mid Wales. Uh, a great tarmac stage providing superb prep for crews before tarmac rallies in the UK, Ireland or further afield uh, and all in a world-class facility. Um, to find out more, visit www.slipandgripautomotive.co.uk or look out for the links in the description of this episode uh, and make sure to give them a follow on Instagram and or Facebook. The Safari, uh, we, we're recording this in uh, in the days leading up to the 2023 edition, um, which I'm sure we can all agree is a fantastic uh, reintroduction to the championship, even if it is a, a slightly different beast to the one that many of us grew up watching. Um, Killian, what, which, who are you looking forward to at most seeing in this the, the coming days? It's it's a very important event for Ravan Pera here. Not to say that, that he's necessarily the one I'm most looking forward to seeing, but most probably very interested to see how he handles this event. I mean, the, the championship is, is kind of still anyone's game. Uh, obviously, the fact that Ogier still hasn't pissed off means that, um, you know the you know he was he was leading the championship up to a point. Obviously, after a couple of events, um, and obviously you know Tannic and, and Nouvelle can be can be still right there as well. But Robin Pereira has a couple of events coming up that maybe he won't be as good on. Um, so he needs a measured drive and and kind of a solid result here. Although I do. I do want to see uh, who I'm most interested in seeing is how Esapaki Lapi gets on with his first visit to Kenya. 
Um, because it's strange, it seems strange now, given that he's been hanging around. He's in the championship a long time. I mean that that first win in Finland is is now six years ago, which is terrifying. That twenty seventeen regulations were were that far ago. But obviously, you know, he was kind of obviously the Safari wasn't on the championship then, and then he was kind of in and out of teams. So he's he's actually the least experienced out of the the top drivers going into this event. That they've all. All the other crews have done this event before in, in the Rally 1 category. So, interested to see how he gets on. He's had a kind of an unlucky start uh, with a prop shaft issues and shakedown, but I'm sure they'll get that resolved and he'll be running away fine shortly. What about you? Um, My head says Rob and Pera because of who he is and uh, because of Toyota's insane reliability and, and, and you know, track record here in recent years. Um. My heart says, I don't know. I'd like Tanak to 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 do well, you know, both from his point of view and an M Sport point of view. So I don't know. But we'll double down on Tanak. Why not? Roll the dice, eh? Go for it. Go for it. As long as no money's changing hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we let you dive into your chosen event, maybe we should just have a quick look at some of the history of the event. The Safari Rally was first held as the Coronation Safari Rally in celebrating the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953 when it was won by Alan Dix in a VW Beetle. Its name was changed to the East African Safari Rally in 1960. And of course, these days, you can still hear that name in the East African Safari Classic, which uh, happens every two years if you still want your proper mammoth endurance safari taste. Um, Masai tribesmen standing looking at Toyotas, that kind of thing. There you go. Yeah, every two years... (laughs) Uh, akin to the RAC, uh, also on a biannual uh, basis. It became known simply as the Safari Rally in 1975, and it is one of the founding events of the World Rally Championship. It was on the calendar from 1973 until 2002, before coming back in a much shorter, sprintier, European-type format in 2021. It was favoured by Japanese manufacturers in the 70s and 80s as a way of showing the ruggedness and reliability of their cars, and Toyota have been the, the winningest team on the event in its World Championship, guys, winning 10 times. Of course, in previous iterations of the event, many modifications <laughs> were made to the car, such as the installation of bull bears snorkels, which were allowed to have a regulation 10 centimeter diameter hole in the bonnet, and the likes of roof-mounted spare tires, as well as extra uh, and adjustable spot lamps. Ford once installed the bull bears behind the bodywork of the Focus, actually, in an effort to reduce the aero offset of the bulky items. Though, of course, such items are no longer allowed, or indeed as much of a necessity. Um, and, of course, even Toyota also had their own testing and development center and, and workshop in Kenya at one point, which, of course, has maybe contributed in no small part to their success on the event. Um, if you had to go back in terms of actually... Mitsubishi have probably been the winningest car on the event overall uh, in its in its out-of-the-world championship years. It was basically just Evos wiping the floor uh, in terms of victories. Uh, and with that, it's back to you, Jamie, to hear about your chosen event for this week. Well, I've chosen the 1996 running of the Safari. Um, and I won't lie, this event uh, was not the, the, the Safari Rally which first sprung to mind when planning this episode, what with the 2001 event looming so large in the history of my own personal favourite WRC car, the Octavia. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, you surprised me when you said you were going 96 because I I kind of already written something going Jamie 2001 and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Armin. <laughs> um, He's just unfollowed you on Instagram. <laughs> um, nevertheless, I've opted to discuss the 96 event instead, partly as I've plumped for early noughties rallies a fair few times already in the life of this series, and partly as it was an interesting year, uh, an interesting rally, its own merits, and the season itself, I feel, is often overlooked. <clears throat> the 1996 running actually marked the first time the safari had been bent to had been, had been bent to the whims of the modern world, and with it the increasingly professional face of the World Rally Championship. Out went the five-day, six thousand kilometer marathons of the 70s and 80s, replaced by a more conventional, compact event run over three days and with three competitive loops made up of FIA mollifying special stages for the first time. Not that these special stages bore much resemblance to those found in Europe. Far from it. Open roads were still very much par for the course, meaning that the chance of being confronted by a local in a Toyota Hilux was ever present. While their competitive length was never anything less than vast, the shortest of the rally still clocking in at 50.45 kilometres back in 1996. In line with the FIA's overreaching commitment to reducing costs, the 96 event was in theory the, la the first to ban the use of service helicopters, but in practice these new regulations were temporarily paused to enable teams to better serve their crews. Thus this became the final safari to feature that Group A trademark choppers being used to drop service personnel and parts to stricken cars mid or immediately post-stage. As we'll soon see, most every works competitor had reason to be grateful for this relaxation at one point or another. Um, this was also the final safari to be run on its traditional Easter weekend slot, and as such, it was just the second round of the WRC, uh, the World Rally Championship, following on from season-opening Swedish rally, uh, with the Monty having been denied its traditional role as the season opener by dint of the much-maligned rotation system. But of course, everything's relative, and if, old, if the old lags present at the time complained that the safari had somehow lost its edge, it was only because they had had the good fortune to be there at the height of the Group 4, if, group four era. For everyone else, and I'd wager most everyone listening to this podcast, the first safari rally of the modern era still comprised the sternest test of man and machine on the WRC calendar, and not merely because it's, it, featured, it featured a full length of 1,784 kilometres of competitive, largely flat-out mileage, and of course, over some of the most punishing terrain anywhere on the continent. The rains came early and came heavy that year, rolling across the East African plain, soaking landscape and turning it into a sodden quagmire. Indeed, so wet was it was it that, uh, that indeed so wet was it that three hundred kilometers had to be scrubbed from the opening leg, leaving an event totaling fifteen hundred kilometers of competitive mileage and still a full five times larger than Safari under its more recent 2021 guise. As we'll soon see, even culling some of the most waterlogged tests didn't stop the sodden weather from making this one of the wettest safaris in recent years. I use recent in relative terms, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, like every time we use recent on this podcast. Uh, any time between now and 1992, I think. You know, that's, that's, that's recent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Recent, um, recently when 34 millimeter restrictors were introduced <laughs> that was only last year <laughs> tell me you haven't got over the demise of group a without telling me <laughs> um 
but yes, the, the, the sodden weather made this one of the wettest, the wettest safaris on record, uh, and with it, a rally predisposed to favour those crews able to drive with one eye firmly fixed on mechanical sympathy. Uh, the 1996 running marked the event's return to the championship, uh, having been forced off the bill thanks to the aforementioned rotation system the previous years, uh, and with it the return of the veritable army of crew personnel, rally, recce and support cars, and of course helicopters, very much a must-fit item for any team seeking safari victory at the time. Each works team had at least one helicopter shadowing its cars, shepherding through, through the stages at immense cost and waylaying warnings about dangers looming ahead, such as muddy sinkholes, errant locals, and indeed local wild wildlife. These same craft were also used to deliver replacement components to those crews competing at the sharp end of the rally, chiefly dampers and other associated components. In short, the 96 Safari Rally actually had as much in common with its marathon forebearers as it did its championship stablemates at the time. Truncated and rationalised it might have been, but this rally retained its most brutal and unforgiving elements, not to mention its ability to amaze thanks to epic scenery, wildlife and weather. So, teams. Um, Mitsubishi's entry uh, comprised uh, Evo 3s for team leader Tommy Mackinnon and another for Kenjiro Shinozuka. Uh, and as such, the team had effectively decided that putting all its eggs in one basket wouldn't be such a bad idea, providing said basket was being held by its Finnish would-be champion. Uh, this decision would, of course, be vindicated in the fullness, fullness of time. But in the lead up to the event, it was by no means certain that the lead rally out, rally out run car would finish the rally, much less lead it. As for Mackinnon, he was approaching the form of his career and the period which would see him confirmed as one of the all-time sporting greats, greats thanks to a then-record-breaking quartet of drivers' titles on the bounce. The first of these would come in '96, and Mackinnon had already served his rival's notice by winning the first round of the season, the Swedish, by a comfortable margin of 23 seconds. Yet it's important to note that this was Mackinnon's very first stab at the safari, the event easily among the most specialised in top-tier motorsport, and as such, he was reckoned to be in with a steep learning curve. While a first go win was by no means out of the question, just ask fellow countryman Yuha Kankadin, most thought it highly unlikely. Shinozuka, for his part, was a stalwart of Mitsubishi's Asia-Pacific program. And while by no means a world-beater in the manner of Makadin, he was at least a dependable pair of hands, precisely the sort of backup an OEM like Mitsubishi needed on a rally such as this. The team could also count upon the safari expertise of its team leader and somewhat talisman, rally art legend Andrew Cowan, a man whose talents behind the wheel had seen him take a Mitsubishi Colt Lancer to third overall on the 1976 safari. Uh, the cars and technology might have changed in the intervening two decades, but the condition, conditions and technique required to do well in Africa most certainly hadn't, and as such, Cowan was something of a trump card for the boys from rugby. Side note, I was staggered and horrified how much further away we are from this event now than than they were from Cowan's victory. Uh, just, uh, yeah, stop the world. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like that that thing that pops up every so often that it's like the the, the picture. The moon landing. By, yeah, yeah, the moon landing and the right flyer uh, further or, or closer together than we are to the moon landing. Um, I did not ask you for this maths. Uh... <laughs> maths has no place on this recording. <laughs> Another rally art heavy hitter was Derek Doncey, instrumental in the team's run of success in general and Mackinnon's eventual safari win in particular. 
He spearheaded Mitsubishi's intense 10-day pre-event test program and so must be credited with the decision to switch from Kayabaya, Kayaba suspension, the, the upright originally fitted to the Evo test rally and recce cars, to Olin's, a far, far more effective damping solution. Uh, Dodsey also went further still, hitting upon, the, hitting upon the idea of changing the suspension on all four corners of Mackinac's car at each and every opportunity, regardless of whether or not this was strictly required. Doing so would tax the team and its technicians, not least as getting this process down to 20 minutes demanded intense pre-event practice, but effectively enabled Macklin to attack the safari in a full-throated manner not too dissimilar from his approach to more conventional European sprint-type events. Subaru. Um, in marked contrast to the somewhat threadbare Mitsubishi effort, Subaru opted to bring no less than three works in Preta 555s to Kenya, one for reigning champion Colin McRae and others for Kenneth Erickson, another for Piero Liati. While far from inexperienced when it came to the safari, it would probably be fair to suggest that Subaru left something on the table when it came to outright expertise, certainly when compared to its rival Mitsubishi. This applied both to the team itself, which, ha which would have to wait a further year to sample outright safari success, and its, and its drivers, none of whom had done a great deal of winning outside of rallying's European heartland. As for team leader McRae, any lingering doubts about his ability to beat the best in the world had been dispelled by his championship success, but questions as to how well suited he, or rather his temperament, was to the event, such was to an event such as the Safari remained. Hot-headed, hot-headed, and perhaps a touch impetuous, McRae would come to be something of Safari expert with three fine victories in total. But in 1996, the first of these was still 12 months away. The Scots' only safari experience prior to this season had been an ill-fated assault using a Subaru Vivio K-car, a machine so small and plainly ill-suited to the rigors of safari that McRae pronounced himself able to hide the whole car in every single pothole along the route. Um, <laughs> yeah, not not a not a, a pleasant uh, ninety-three assault, I, I gather. Um, as for the Impreza 555 McRae and Co. would use to tackle the 96 event, it was a potent car, replete with perhaps the most advanced suite of differentials in the championship, but questions remained over its outright toughness, again, especially in relation to Mitsubishi's Kenyan-honed Evo tanks. This concern would prove well-warranted in the fullness of time. As for Ford, they came to Kenya with a pair of Escort Cosworths, one for Carlos Sainz and one for veteran Stig Blomquist, and while hopes were high for a competitive showing, it was hard to ignore the fact that the Group A escort was getting a little longer in the tooth come this point. Indeed, it had been over a year since Ford had won a WRC round, while 1995 had seen the cars run for this season by Belgian RAS Sport uh, instead of Borum, achieve just two podiums. Borum was back running the cars for 96, however, and while it would be a stretch to suggest that this meant hopes of challenge for the title, it did at least bring much needed stability to the veteran outfit. As for its drivers, Ford called upon Toyota refugee and double world champion Carlos Sainz, as well as 1984 champion Blumquist. So what the team lacked in outright speed, probably made up for in experience. And of course, Toyota. One of the reasons that the 96 season is so often overlooked is, I feel, the absence of Toyota and thus the existence of just three... One of the reasons that the 1996 WRC season is so often overlooked is, I think, the absence of Toyota, and thus the existence of just three works full-time teams. 
PTE's absence was down to its infamous t- turbo restrictor skullduggery of the previous season. And while Uwe Anderson and the boys would return with the Corolla for a handful of rounds the following year, in 1996, they were bit players, sending the odd Salika GT4 to contest select rounds with select drivers. Thus, the Toyota contingent at the Safari that year consisted of a loaned car for a local man and previous outright winner, Ian Duncan. But the GT4 in question was actually run under the Toyota Kenya banner. So, on to the rally. Leg one, the opening leg rally saw crews tackle almost 500 kilometres of competitive mileage, starting with the opening stage of the rally, the 62 kilometres of Macacos, then the daunting tests of Kiboko and Kahido at 109 kilometres and 50 kilometres respectively, before rounding out the leg with Oletepesi and Kamakaru uh, at 100 kilometres and 77 kilometres. The latter would ultimately be scrubbed thanks to the quite mild conditions, meaning a reduced leg of just over 400 kilometres. Still a mighty mileage by anyone's standards, except perhaps Group 4 veterans like Rano Alton and Hannah Mikola. Colin McRae was first on the road and quick out the blocks and hoped for a better Kenyan experience than his last visit back in 1992. The reigning champion met with success early on in the first leg, blasting through the swampy conditions with what at times seemed like indecent haste and haste and little regard for the condition of the tracks he was flinging his impreta down. McRae was kept honest by teammate Ericsson in second, but both found themselves coming under increasing pressure from Makinen as the safari entered the muddier Kahido test. The Finns' morning progress had been hampered by a rear dry shaft, but with the help of the ever-present team chopper and relaxed rules regarding servicing, he was able to continue the fight, surging back into the lead in the afternoon on the third stage of McRae. This wasn't to last, however, with a puncture causing the lead Evo to again shed hefty amounts of time, thus promoting Ericsson to the lead, one he'd hold until the end of the day, in part thanks to the final legs being scrapped. scrapped. Uh, because the final stage had more in common with a river than a special stage. Uh, Ericsson pronounced himself happy with his performance on that opening day, uh, as well he might have done. He was one of the few works drivers not to not to encounter tyre suspension or drivetrain maladies. He ended the test ahead of Macklin in the second and teammate McRae back down in third, uh, the latter uh, having to overcome various drive shaft issues of his own. The Fords of Sainz and Blomquist proved to be the least well-suited to the rigours of the Kenyan mud, and this manifested itself in a rash of, you guessed it, shredded drive shafts, though the boring cars also had to contend with broken suspension uprights, not to mention rising under bonnet temperatures caused in part by a cake of hardened mud preventing adequate cooling. The second leg of the 96 rally began at dawn and consisted of five truly monstrous tests, which wound their way through the Kenyan grasslands and farmed fields before depositing crews back in Nairobi after 725 kilometres of competitive driving. The 140 kilometres of Moradent kick-start proceedings before the crews proceeded to tackle the 170-kilometre test of Lorak. It was then time to blast through Eten and the Eladamat Ravine, a mere 145 or 140 kilometres respectively, before the Congoli stage, part of Kenya's iconic Great Rift Rally, our Great Rift Valley, on the return trip back to the Kenyan capital. Conditions on the second leg were drier than the first, though the sheer amount of water deposited onto the Kenyan tracks ensured that vast ponds remained, and these were now joined by a liberal sprinkling of dust. And as if to make things even trickier, the rain wasn't in, wasn't gone completely, not by a long shot, with sudden unannounced downpours want to turn key sections of the route into rivers at a moment's notice. 
Ericsson surrendered his lead almost immediately due to a costly two-minute puncture, and this allowed a resurgent Makinen to grab the lead and the event for the scruff of the neck once more. It would be in this leg that Radiat's decision to fit the aforementioned all-ins, dampers, and to change them, plus the upper, lower, and toe links at every opportunity, would begin to really pay dividends. The team had practised and practised in the days leading up to the event, and the upshot was that all of this could be achieved within 20 minutes, effectively giving Kotome a good-as-new Evo, at least in terms of suspension, at the end of each and every service opportunity. McRae doubtless wished ProDrive had done something similar, as he found his day ruined by a trio of bent dampers on the opening test. Two replacements were flown in and fitted by a helicopter mid-stage, but the third had to be driven on for many kilometres until the mid-morning service, by which point McRae had lost 40 minutes and any realistic hope of catching Mackinnon, barring mechanical intervention, of course. Science's rally came to an end late in the second leg and in fairly tortuous circumstances. He and Lewis Moyer had already had to reduce their pace in order to preserve the health of their escort Cosworth, but even this wasn't enough, and the crew suffered a pair of front suspension failures on the bounce and in the same stage. Second of these saw the upright make a bid for freedom through the bonnet, and while this was ultimately bodged together by joining the bottom of the strut to a section of the sump guard, it would cost the lead escort over an hour of time. Even this wasn't enough to sate the Kenyan rally gods, as the YB and Sainz's escort overheated in protest at the slow pace Sainz now had to proceed with, and thus he retired on the final test of the second leg. First back to Nairobi at the end of the second leg was a resurgent Makinen, no doubt delighted with both the suspension and the frenzied efforts of the rally up team, ahead of Ericsson in the lead in Pretzer and Ian Duncan in his Salika GT4 a distant third. More overnight rain caused the opening duo of tests of the third and final leg to be cancelled, meaning the outcome of the rally would be three would be decided by three final blasts through the Serengeti. The <laughs> sorry Kenyan speakers, or <laughs> the Nutel stage at 141 kilometers, say a bye at a bonkers 214 kilometers, and finally. Ole Polos, a relative minnow at a mere 88 kilometres. Mackinnon's advantage come the beginning of the reg was a healthy but not exactly foolproof. Uh, was a healthy but not was healthy but not exactly foolproof, and as such, he must have let a, a sigh of relief when second-placed Ericsson hit troubles on the first test of the day. A puncture, a bad one, and it cost the Swede over 11 minutes. He was still a good way ahead of Ian Duncan in third and all hopes of a win had departed, at least assuming things continued to go Mackinnon's way in terms of reliability. And that, surprisingly, was about it as far as last-day dramas were concerned. Ericsson consolidated his hold on second, but must have been somewhat disappointed given his pace early on. Had it not been for the impressive taste for chewing up dampers, he could well have been, he could well have been challenging for the outright win. That left Mackinnon to take a famous win at the first time of asking, leading Ericsson home by just over 14 minutes. Mackinnon attributed, attributed much of his success to the immense amount of pre-event testing and recce work he and the Rally Art team had undertaken, and it's hard to deny that this effort played a pivotal role in making the Evo 3 the toughest Group A car there on the day. It helped neuter some of the Safari's more car-breaking traits and enabled Mackinnon to deploy his customary attacking style to full effect. Ian Duncan came home a fine third, 25 minutes ahead of McRae, who in turn was 18 minutes ahead of his teammate Piero Liatti. Uh, Kinjiro, Kinjihiro in the second Eva was sixth, 
with Blomquist in the only escort to finish a distant seventh. Um, so yeah, I, I, perhaps not the most cut and thrust safari, but it's always appealed to me because I remember dimly following it as a kid and appreciating Mackinnon surging to the fore. Um, I also find most 96 events quite interesting because it's such a weird topsy-turvy season between yeah. the the Salika not being there officially. Um, and by the way, I think I should get some kind of praise for mentioning the TTE turbo restricted without saying ingenious. If you, if you, if you, whenever you encounter that online, ingenious comes up. Um, ingenious or infamous. And, and I didn't, I withheld any remark, uh, about you have having a Salika or, or exactly, you know, any sort um, of, any sort of bias. Uh, (laughs) Um, but yeah, and I think also because it, it it can't help but be overshadowed in the fullness of history by ninety seven and and you know the world rally car rules and of course ninety five is is you know from from a an, an English speaking perspective I think is 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 the all consuming year uh, for obvious reasons um, and it's it's really weird as a a year when rotation just fucked everything up you know you, you, there's uh, uh, no Monte, no, Monte, no RSC, yeah. no Portugal because it was an F two only round. Yeah, um, it's also yeah. the only season in the WRC's history where the only winners of individual events were either World Rally champions or soon to be World Rally champions. So, all in, quite a strange little year. But um, I like it. I like Macadon, and uh, I, I like someone winning Safari at the first time of asking. Yeah, and, and like yeah, it it you you hit on two things there, which I I find of note. Ninety six is one of those kind of forgotten is probably the wrong word for it, but maybe it's because it was so strange, and and ninety five lives large in so many people's memories, certainly in 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 perhaps the English speaking world, um, and that that odd calendar, but also yes, like going to safari and winning it on your first go is very very impressive, and as we know, like experience counts for a lot in rallying and on any event but it's one of those ones as well where you have to be well positioned with the people around you who know what safari is about and if you're if you're going to do it at the first time of asking he was well positioned to do so like you say with the likes of cowan and rally arts experience there as mm-hmm. well it's it's knowing how to approach it and they know how to test the car properly and prepare it properly and you know, go through that with with Tommy, who's not going to come up and drive it like a European event mm-hmm. uh, as a result. So yeah, no, um, a worthy winner in the end, and and added to Rally Arts tally uh, of which they had more than a few. Yeah, it also reads like a missive from another time, doesn't it? The idea that you just fly in parts and and you know just just treat it, you know, put throw componentry at the issue. You know, that's yeah. such an alien thing now. Yeah, because I think I mentioned it on a previous podcast, but I have. I'd asked uh, some questions of Terry Harriman about the event via his uh, also very talented co-driver son, Alan. And um, one of the things that, that stood out was, you know, it was just one monster service area. You just keep throwing parts at it, is what he said. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and that's, you know, flying, flying in bits and just keep chucking dampers at it until it reaches the finish. Now, I suspect your going to follow up with your your suggestion will will show just how things how much things have changed in 
a relatively few short years in terms of how the safari was contested. That's yes, correct. Because there was no um the the likes of a, a remote and, and ongoing service servicing type situation was, was no longer a thing at this point. Um which will play a very important part. Um the five 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 Safari Rally of nineteen ninety-nine took place at the end of February. Typically an event that took place in March or April. Um, but the route this year would stretch both north and south of Nairobi, where the rally would be based out of. The three legs taking place from Thursday's Super Special to the conclusion on Sunday would consist of 13 competitive stages, totaling 1,009.91 kilometres and a total distance of 2,650.24 kilometres. Quite the distance when compared to the return of Safari in 2021, which had 363 competitive stage kilometres and an overall distance of 1,200. None of the stages in 1999 would be completed in darkness. Uh, unfortunately, as obviously safari lampads and, and variations of, of special lampads are always a feature of safari over the years with the likes of um, Lancia's super skinny ones to help with cooling in the higher temperatures. Um, this would be the first time that safari's timing would actually be done down to the tenth of a second. Uh, and to complicate matters for crews and teams alike, they had one day to recover from Rally Sweden in sub-zero con conditions to fly to the scorching temperatures and beautiful landscapes typical of Kenya, bringing with them, like Jamie pointed out, an army of support vehicles and enough helicopters to film the Riders of Valkyrie scene from Apocalypse Now. 45 crews entered the event with five works teams, including 12 World Rally Cars, or rather 10 World Rally Cars and two Group A Cars. Uh, in the case of Mitsubishi, obviously. The reason I've chosen this event chiefly is because in 1999, seven-year-old me was becoming fully aware of rallying and I have an image burnt into my head of McRae's focus, bouncing along at speed, trailing great plumes of dust with that blue, orange and white focus and its horrendous rear spoiler. Um, so onto the, the teams and people contesting the event. Mitsubishi, um, I guess I had to start with Mitsubishi here, a team with decent success in the past. Um, and certainly in 1996. In an event where since the 1970s, the safari was largely a hunting ground favoured by Japanese manufacturers. Lancers had won the event in 1974, 1976, 1996 and 1998, twice in the hands of local driver Yoginder Singh and once in the hands of Tommy Mackinnon and the previous year in 1998 with Richard Burns. Rally Art were now fielding the Group A Evo 6, largely similar to the previous car, the Evo 5, but with a revised aero package, though the FIA didn't care for the two-stage rear wing introduced on the car, which had to be changed and have the lower opening closed. Heading up Mitsubishi's efforts were current championship leader Tommy Mackinnon, having won both the previous two events in Monty and Sweden in his Evo 6, an excellent start to the season for the then three-time world champion and indeed defending world champion, picking up his first Monty win, actually, in 99. The other rally art machine was in the hands of Belgium's Freddy Likes, and I can hear the groaning of Likes fans from here because he has no success in any event we've covered in this podcast and seems to catch a bit of flack. Um, though we're, we, do, we do love you, Freddy, but you just haven't come out lucky on the, the events we've chosen. Not because of that. Um... Though his car was, for marketing reasons, a Charisma GT Evo 6. 
Toyota, perhaps the kings of safari, Toyota Team Europe, had won the event eight times in the previous 15 years, and their rallying program in the 80s largely consisted of building a car to be rugged enough to win endurance events such as the safari and the Ivory Coast. The Corolla WRC, of which three would compete here this year, had replaced the Celica and had much to live up to on the event given how many times the Celica had proven victorious. The nimble and much more compact Corolla had been decent so far, though not when it deprived signs of another championship the previous year by giving up the ghost in Margon Park with the finish in sight. Jamie, do you know how many WRC victories the Corolla achieved in its career? Um, I feel like I should. I'm going to guess it's surprisingly few. Um, and that is exactly why I've asked the question, because yes, because I was Monty, surprised. One Monty in 98. Uh, Rally China in 99. Rally China, yes. So Monty, China, I think it's probably four. Under money. On the money. Oh, God, yeah. thank Christ. Yeah. I can't. What, wait, wait, wait. So China, 99, 98, uh, Monty, for, 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 and, and then, and what are the other two? Uh, Do you want me oh, to give you a second or will I no, tell you? No, I want you to tell me. I want you to tell the other two. I'm going to have to return my gravel coup gold card. No, no, that was okay. Because I was, uh, four seems like a terribly no number for what was a very decent care. Um, I mean, so, I, I realize I'm going to offend the whole of Ireland here, but I always thought it was a fairly so-so WRC car. You know, I know you, I can hear you all hating me now, but but I think you know it's it's maybe that's the Vasily Corona, but you know, it's, yeah. like the bias showing through there. Okay, so <laughs> Signs had two wins and Oriel had two wins in it, um, and the other two were Catalonia and uh, New Zealand. New Zealand, yes. It's Oriol who won in China, isn't it, I believe? Yes, Oriol yeah. was China and Catalonia and signs for the other two. Ah. Yeah, well, you know, when I saw four the other day when I was writing this, I had six in my head, so I don't know. I mean, I wasn't giving it massive credit, but I just four seems like a small amount given that signs was within metres of clinching a world championship in one. I think that's mainly why, you know, when you think, right, he was, he was on the cusp of a championship win, Although you yeah. know, it was its first season, admittedly. Um, it also plays an outside role in terms of most domestic championships. Well, not most. Quite a lot of domestic championships. First crushingly competitive, even dominant WRC car is a Corolla. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of national Corolla success. Yes. Um, and the Safari would be the last event in which the power unit of the Corolla would be derived from the Celica before moving to a Lexus-based unit. Steins was back for 1999 and failed to repeat his win in Monty from 98, having retired in the 99 outing, but had finished second in Sweden. Steins had plenty of experience in Kenya and indeed had won here with Toyota in 1992 in the Celica. Didier Ariel, another former world champion, would drive the second Corolla, although... Do you call it the second Corolla when you have two world champions in your in your cars? I don't know. Um, but in this case, I'm calling it the second Corolla. Didier had picked up a podium in Monty and a fourth place in Sweden so far, uh, but was still in a pitched battle with his hairline. The third Corolla was a Toyota Kenya entry being ran by TTE in the hands of previous Safari winner and local driver Ian Duncan, who had emerged victorious in 1994, also behind the wheel of a Celica. That's the sausage Salika, is it not? I believe that 94 yes. one. Yes. Flying sausage. 
The first safari of the World Rally Car era had been won in 1997 by Colin McRae in the 97 Impreza S5 WRC. To date, Subaru's only win in Kenya. But in 1998, both McRae and Liati retired their Imprezas with engine issues, reliability having plagued Subaru throughout the 98 championship year and playing a big factor in McRae leaving for rivals Ford. ProDrive returned to Kenya with a 98 chassis, even though they had debuted a revised 99-spec car in Monte Carlo, and we would be one of the two Pirelli shod teams competing. The driver pairing was maybe the strongest on the event, actually, when it came to Safari, with former world champion Juha Kankinen not showing his age at this late stage of his career and having no small amount of experience or success on this round, having won here three times, twice with Toyota and once with Lancia. His time at Subaru had gotten off to a decent start with a second place in Monte and a sixth place in Sweden last time out. 12 years Kankinen's junior and piloting the other Impreza was last year's winner, Richard Burns, who had been with Mitsubishi and no doubt looking for a second safari on the bounce. Uh, side note, this this event, I think, delivered one of my all-time favourite rally photos, certainly um, from a safari in the modern era, of uh, Burns uh, getting airborne over uh, a jump, which, if memory serves, uh, consists of uh, a railway junction, you know, over over the over the, the tracks with loads of Maasai in the background, uh, with bull bars and the, the front of the car weirdly nosed down, you know, um, yeah, just one of those images that really sticks with me. I need to try and find it, but it's it's one heck of a shot. Dig it up and we'll put it on the, the Instagram, on the Twitter, perhaps. Belgium's Bruno Thierry was in a third in Pretza at WRC for the event also. Ford hadn't won in Kenya since Bjorn Waldegard behind the wheel of a Mark II Escort in 1977 and had been eager to return to winning ways there ever since. With the venerable escort retired and replaced by the focus for the 1999 season, perhaps this new car could bring them some overdue results. It heralded a new era for Ford and rallying, the first car to be developed by M Sport, with Borum now being a thing of the past, designed by a poached from ProDrive, Gunther Steiner. The Mark I Focus between, became an incredible-looking rally car, though not in 99 when it was undone by its poor rear spoiler and livery, which didn't quite work as well as the one that came the year after. The new era hadn't had an auspicious start with both focuses, focus eye, focuses being, I don't know, focuses just doesn't sound right. Yeah. (laughs) Being disqualified on the Monte due to a water bump that had not been homologated. They also arrived in Kenya with very little pre-event testing completed, um, which they did in France. Leading Ford's charge was the recently arrived Conor McRae, tasked with returning Ford to championship glory. McRae had won here in 97 with Subaru, but suffered a frustrating retirement in 98, as mentioned earlier. He'd also retired on his second event with Ford in Sweden and desperately needed a good result here to kickstart both his and Ford's challenge. To make matters worse, the Scott had broken his thumb during testing. Uh, the wheel moved violently on one part of the road and uh, yeah, snapped his thumb. Speaking of broken bones, Ford's other nominated driver, Thomas Radstrom, fresh from a third place finish in the Focus in Sweden, had somehow managed to both knock himself out and break his leg at the pre-event lunch in the hotel. <laughs> oh, to be a fly on the wall. Maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe casting a spell which had gone wrong. Well, you see, you took the high road. I was going to go the low and see those a different prescription of those milk bottle specs, but. Uh... <laughs> 
Uh, there oh. goes our Swedish contingent. I was going to say, you know, the, um, <laughs> the hey, if, if, if John Desborough can get away with it. <laughs> He's got more clout than us. <laughs> this led to an emergency call-up for a young Petter Salberg who had no experience of such an event. And Malcolm Wilson was counting on the experience of co-driver Fred Gallagher, three-time winner of the event, to guide him through unscathed. The other team on the event using Pirelli tyres, Seat, had sent their Ibiza F2 car to Kenya in 1998 while development of the Cordoba was taking place to gather some knowledge and preparation for the Spanish brand's assault on the established World Championship elite. The somewhat Frankenstein Cordoba with its snowback built engine, road drive four-wheel drive system, fuel and box and matter prepared body had gotten off to a decent start actually with an admirable 6th and 7th place in Monte, uh, albeit obviously promoted slightly by the disqualification of um, McRae and Simon Jean-Joseph in the hands of Pierre Liatti and Harry Ravenpera. Though I've always found the Cordoba quite a handsome thing, particularly in the Evo 2 guys. It was a car ill-suited to success in the WRC, um, maybe following a trend of VW group cars at this era, with poor weight distribution, compromised suspension travel and overhangs much too long. I bet somewhere there's a Seat Sport engineer still cursing the fact that Peugeot managed to squeeze in the 206 when they weren't allowed to use the Ibiza as originally planned. Engineer Roger Estrada was given the task of preparing the Cordoba for safari and in charge of their test programme, which took place in France. Liati and Rovampera would remain for safari, though neither had a great deal of experience here, though Liati, of course, had fallen foul of the 98 and Pretz's poor reliability the previous year. Tommy McAdam's weekend got off to an incredibly poor start, perhaps a sign of where his luck would go, as he and Robbie Head of McGann Maxi VRC fame, then a test driver with Subaru, had a head-on collision on a stage during recce, though fortunately the occupants of both cars were unharmed. Shakedown took place on what would also be the super special at Jamhuri Park. An eager Peter Salberg managed to win, in inverted commas, Shakedown, but on the way to doing so, bent all the suspension in his focus, leading to some stern words from Malcolm Wilson, who claimed in an interview some years ago that Petter would never forget the chat he had with him following shakedown. Fred Gallagher even went to Wilson after the shakedown and said, if he drives like that in the rally, there's no hope of us finishing the event. If, if Malcolm was going to give him the, the verbal hairdryer treatment for that, I want to know what he gave Radstrom somehow managing to break all his bones at lunch. I mean, it strikes me as as one of these is a little more understandable than the other. <laughs> I can't I, I, I can't find um any info on to what like it was it a, was it a boozy was it a boozy lunch? It definitely was. The very fact that there's no description means that yeah like was he sent so- flying through you know a buffet um <laughs> While, while someone stands over him shaking a fist. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe Radstrom just can't remember the, the words Wilson had with him through the, the painkiller haze or something on his way to hospital. <laughs> He'd summoned a spell to make himself forget it. Mm. If anyone was present at this luncheon or has uh, any info on how Radstrom became unconscious and um, minus the use of one of his legs... Um, Send us a message on Twitter or Instagram, please, because it would be very entertaining to know. And I do have to thank someone, actually, on the uh, It Gets Faster Now Discord for pointing out to me that he broke his leg, because I didn't know that. Um, 
was was how uh, I knew Salzburg had been drafted in due to an injury, but I didn't know he'd uh, broken his leg. Um, so proceedings kicked off proper on Thursday afternoon at three o'clock local time with the competitors once again going over the super special they'd used for shakedown. Juha Kankinen was the victor here by a margin of one second over teammate Burns and Toyota Sainz. Friday morning saw the crews have a 10-minute service halt before heading onto the stages proper. And first up was the first pass of Isinia Orion, a mammoth 112.4km stage, though of course being safari, mammoth stages were the norm. Freddie likes his day started with a flat battery, but he did manage to get going. And Richard Burns would set the fastest time here, closely followed by Carlos Sainz, with amazingly just one second separating the two drivers over the 112 kilometers, which is absolutely incredible. They completed the stage in 48 minutes, 25 seconds and 26 seconds, respectively. Tommy Mackinnon stopped to change a puncture, but more on that later. Bruno Thierry would retire on stage two with electrical gremlins putting an end to his rally and it was the start of another bad visit to Kenya for the Banbury-based team. After a service hall to Plains Park, the crews made their way to the 49-kilometre long stage three. Ulu Toit Kosh Eljado My Swahili is very poor. Um, you could you could remember the 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 correct language as opposed to me, but Kenyan. I was trying to think Swahili, but so you already get points. I didn't Google it in the meantime. Totally. Uh, oh, sorry, Belgium. Freddie likes his woes continued as he and Sven Smith had a heavy accident, rolling the car and leaving it looking like someone dropped a piano on it. Loix was taken to hospital to be checked over and discharged after x-rays revealed just severe bruising. However, on his return to Belgium and a second glance at the x-ray, it turned out he had indeed actually got a cracked vertebrae and would have to sit things out for a while before returning to rallying later in the year. That's, that's a Simpsons quote. He was later transferred to a better, better hospital where his condition was upgraded. <laughs> or in this case, downgraded. <laughs> Um, to be fair to Lloyd, he did say um, it was no fault of the doctors, just the people who looked at the x-rays, um, who possibly would have been doctors or maybe not. I don't know. Juha Kankinen would also retire on stage three with electrical issues. <laughs> another impreza headed for an early bath. Carlos Sainz would take the stage win just under a minute from Burns and the top three heading for another stop at Plains Park service was Sainz, Burns and McRae plugging away with his broken thumb and staying out of trouble in very un like fashion. Stage four, the much easier to pronounce Hunter's Lookout, a 72-kilometre stage was once again won by Sainz, now 26 seconds ahead of Burns, with McRae not far away in safari terms, two minutes behind the leader. Peter Salberg was being kept in check by veteran Fred Gallagher and so far was sitting in fifth overall, uh, an admirable start to um, your first visit and someone who was at that time, uh, World Rally Championship rookie. Stage five, Lechnilly Bezel was 113 kilometers in length, second of the day's two truly monster stages, and was won by Mackinnon, slowly making his way up the order to slot into fifth place, though carrying a 20 second penalty to boot. Liati in his Cordoba was doing a decent job and now sat in sixth, but was in but there was a change of lead as Burns managed to overhaul Spaniard signs and led by 26 seconds at the end of the day. 
Rally leader Burns capitalised on his position on Saturday morning and came off of stage six with two minutes in hand over now second place Colin McRae. Carlos Sainz had lost over eight minutes in the stage and after picking up a penalty was now over 10 minutes off the lead. Though at this point still 10 minutes is, is uh, quite a small amount in safari terms still. The top three was now Burns, McRae and Oriel with Mackinnon fourth and Sainz fifth. After service in Equator Park, south of, sorry, excuse me, north of Nairobi, it was time for the 87 kilometers long stage seven Nayaru Eldama Ravine. It was here where Burns's rally came undone and presumably resulted in much throwing of objects in the Subaru service area as he re- retired with suspension failure, making it two years on the trot Subaru would fail to finish safari and elevating a measured McRae into first place with four minutes in hand to his nearest opposition in the form of Oriel. With cars and crews suitably refreshed and prepared once more back in service, stage eight beckoned, where Mackinnon claimed at fastest time and moved into third. Though McRae was increasing his margin to Oriel and still had over 15 minutes separating him and the Finn. Saturday came to a close with the longest stage of the event, the 126-kilometre Marigat Gary Yamashi test. Carlos Sainz claimed another stage win here, taking just over an hour to complete the stage, followed by Mackinnon's second fastest, while Oriel dropped nearly 20 minutes. Sunday would consist of four stages, the first two being repeats of the two 100-kilometre-plus stages from Friday, and then a 49-kilometre stage concluding with another visit to the Super Special at the end. A determined Oriel trying to recover his podium position managed to get back into third after a stage win on the opener, while Mackinnon took a few minutes out of rally leader McRae. Stage 11 saw local driver Ian Duncan set the fastest time, that local knowledge no doubt playing a big part in putting it up to some of the world's finest drivers, while Mackinnon reduced his gap to just 10 minutes, and in safari time, safari is the only time you can say just 10 minutes, with Oriel now a comfortable third ahead of signs. The stage also saw the engine of Liati's Cordoba give up the ghost, ending his event. Mackinnon had a big push on for the final proper test and managed to eke another two minutes from McRae, but it was not enough. And after the super special, it was Colin McRae who stood in the top step of the podium, with the Toyota t- trio of Oriel, Sainz and Duncan coming second, third and fourth, respectively. But wait, where's Mackinnon? Well, remember that puncture on the opening day? Some spectators helped him change the wheel, which the FIA felt was in breach of the no-service rule. Despite objections that he didn't actually need help to do it anyway, he was disqualified. They had also had video footage from another team submitted that apparently showed Mackinnon actually asking spectators for help. Not exactly the first time someone on the rallies had some, uh, someone at the side of the stage help them, but he was excluded nonetheless, and quite unfortunate given the great drive he had given to claw his way back to second place. Of course, Can you imagine how grainy that footage the, that was that the that the person spying on him wanted to get it in 1999. You know, <laughs> it was it was from one of the camera crews of one of the other teams. Ah, okay, um, okay. So unless they were like following him in a distance with a helicopter with some sort of, um, you know, police helicopter style camera mounted underneath it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I mean, even then, it's probably still quite shit. Can you even make out Mackinnon in 16 pixels? I don't know. Um, just someone like with a manual VCR button, just rewinding and playing. There he is. That's when he beckons them over. Um. <laughs> Of course, the other story here is Ford ending their 22-year spell without a win in Kenya and a great victory from 
Uh, and albeit slightly injured McRae, but you know, you need your thumb on the steering wheel. Um, must have been quite sore bumping around uh, Kenya with a broken thumb holding the wheel with it. The, the focus, now you mention it, seemed to have a history of trying to rob Colin McRae of digits because I remember after that Corsican crash in 2000 when he came back a bit too soon, uh, you know, several weeks after there was talk. Uh, that he might have to have a little finger amputated or whatever, you know, because because he came back so early and and he sort of seemed to take that in his stride. So, yeah, I don't know. Something about focus is wanting to rob Scotsman of digits. <laughs> a very mature measured rally from McRae in which he did not win a single stage but doing exactly what he needed to do and taking care that the car was able to finish and finish well, knowing others would fall away around him. Not a driver known for such style, but he could do it when needed, and he had done it in the past and after that. And here it was certainly needed, giving McRae his second Safari win, though one not really expected going in, and kickstarting his championship challenge for the 99th season, though this kickstart would last about five minutes. And despite winning in Portugal the next time out, he would retire on every other event that season, bar one. Special mention has to go to newcomer Salberg for coming home in fifth on his first outing after being drafted in the last minute as well. And that was a big pat on the back to Fred Gallagher for reeling in uh, Mr. Hollywood on the event. In the F2 category, the only finisher was a man by the name of Phineas Kimothy, someone who was a big fan of the winner and went on to name his son McRae in honour of, of the Scot. And indeed, McRae Kimothy has gone on to be no slouch in a rally car himself. And last year, rather infamously getting some coaching on how to make a proper cup of tea from the late great and sorely missed Craig Breen. And that is the 1999 Safari Rally. Superbly done and and, and uh, a wonderfully poignant ending as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a great rally that I remember 99 quite vividly. Um, certainly as, as a McRae fan. With a dislike for the focus compared to the Impreta, I was quite happy. Well, I was happy he won that one, but I also felt vindicated with how shite the rest of the year went. Um, and I, I remembered that Mackinnon had been excluded, but I, I couldn't, for the life of me, remember how how well relatively the Toyotas had done. You know, obviously out of that, but anyway, you know, I, I couldn't have told you who filled the the other podium places there without googling. Yeah, two, three, and four there from Toyota, and um, typically. Good Toyota, uh, Toyota, Toyota, <laughs> Toyota visit to to Kenya, um, you know, very well positioned to do so, I guess. Um, and McCrave probably was far. I know his his rest of his season was shit. I guess if he was still in an Impreza for ninety nine, he also would have come a cropper on that event. Mm. Although debatable whether the rest of the year would have gone as poorly for him, and I suspect it wouldn't have. Um, but that of course is a is a history time yeah counterfactuals were more counterfactuals to be added to the list um i think someone that has far more free time and attention to detail is required than me to uh compose such an alternate uh championship thing like i did see a an alternate 2021 formula one season thread on twitter the other day which consumed a massive amount of my time complete with video evidence and timings and it was it was very impressive but i would wonder when that person has last seen daylight um so yeah that brings us to the end of um 
or Safari retrospective. Hopefully this year's one proves one that is worthy of talking about in years to come. To be fair, there's been a bit of drama already as we record this on the Wednesday. Um, Takamoto Katsuta has rolled on the shakedown and Lappy has had his prop shaft issues. So we'll see how the event goes over the course of the weekend and I'll be following it um, from, I suspect, a chunk of the weekend, although not Sunday when I'll be rallying myself. But um, yeah, looking forward to watching it again because look, the scenery there, it, it just presents such a great backdrop. It's one of the ultimate rallying locations regardless of the event, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it also seems to have this uncanny knack to uh, delivering, you know, iconic photos like uh, that 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 smash you said, the 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 screen grab of that Toyota Yaris going end over end or barrel rolling is already destined to uh, for for icon status. I feel. Mm. Um, I mean, it has given us that ultimate one, which is always used of the. It is a Celica, isn't it, with the mountain in the background? Yeah. Yeah. I, like, I like the Photoshop where it gets higher and higher each time. <laughs> um, I've also seen it with Peter Dumbrick's uh, and and uh, and Mark Webber's uh, Le Mans oh, Mercedes Le Mans, doing backflip in the background. You know, which is <laughs> <laughs> going over the mountain. <laughs> oh dear! But yes, no, that was uh, that was good. I hope everyone else enjoyed it. We enjoyed putting it together. Yeah. So, what's our next one? Uh, he says with no knowledge of. Uh, and being very forgetful of how the calendar is looking. Uh, or we have, what, Estonia and Finland coming up next uh, on the, this year's calendar, which means we won't be doing Estonia then. Instantly, my mind went blank and decided to cut me back to what I consider the, the default calendar of the late 90s. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we won't be doing a rally Estonia. North is... Finland. I mean, nothing iconic's ever happened there, is it? You know, that's face. That's fucking shy, isn't it? Yeah, through the woods. Yeah. Um, do we wrestle for the Chris Meek victory then? Oh no, you can have that. No, no, it's no, fine. No. I'll, I'll, no, but, no. Uh... Uh, as I know, it's one we discuss quite a lot off air, as it were. What did you say? It's your go-to for people who who don't quite get the appeal of rallying. You show them the on the... on board. Yeah, yeah. Which I did in a noisy pub then one night. People were asking me, I said, oh, I'll, I'll use Jamie's go-to. I suspect they heard none of it, but uh, as I slurred my words narrating it. <laughs> no, stop talking. What's this? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we will be back for retrospectives of Finland and Acropolis, um, which I suspect will be quite a nice one. Um then we have Chile, and then the last three events of the year are Chile, the Anschluss Rally, and Rally Japan. Sorry, the Central European Rally. The, uh, the Anschluss Rally, I mean, we can do a history a history podcast, podcast segue there. <laughs> I'm censoring yeah. myself now. There's many things that I haven't said. Um, yeah, so the Central European Rally are taking place in Austria, Germany, and the Czech Republic. Um, nothing of note. Has ever Not, happened. I think, no, the Sudetenland uh, stage or something. <laughs> well, we'll be back with a Munich agreement next time. And after rallying returns to using Michelin tyres, Ogier declares peace in our time. Um, it's been Rally DNA. I'm Killian Cronin. I'm Jamie Ackle. Thanks very much for listening to this very diplomatic and uh, international relations friendly episode of Rally DNA. 
Goodbye. It was Colin McRae's second win in Safari and Ford's first since 1977, denying Mitsubishi its seventh consecutive victory. McRae took victory without winning a single stage. Oriel finished over 14 minutes behind. Sainz was third. Mackinnon still led the championship with Oriel seven points adrift. Sainz and McRae were equal third.